Last week we began our journey, as I said, through Romans. This is week two. I want to tell you that when we come to this, we really are coming to some holy ground today. The text that we're going to look at today is really holy ground, frankly a little overwhelming. And, um, and really the only way that we're going to engage this, if you lean in with me, because I've got some words that I need to teach you, some concepts that are kind of deep and thick, but if we don't understand those, we're not going to understand what Paul's trying to do in the coming chapters. So I'm really counting on you to join with me in this and pay attention and really work with me together as we chew on this wonderful piece of meat that, uh, that we received from the Apostle Paul called the Letter to the Romans. Um, last week we talked about how the introduction of Romans is long. It is huge, actually. It runs one, verses 1 through 13 just for his salutation. And of course there was a reason for that. What was the reason? That's exact. He didn't know, they didn't know who Paul was. I mean, they'd were, they would have heard of him, of course, but they'd never met him. He didn't found this church. As a matter of fact, this church was probably planted about 20 years before. Which, so now if a church had existed for 20 years and, and in comes Paul and kind of sticking his nose into their business, I mean, he's got to kind of justify why it is that he feels led of the Lord to begin to speak into their lives. And so, like I said, 13 verses. Uh, that we, uh, kind of uh, lays out his credentials for them. I'm not going to cover all of that today, but I would urge you to read through it uh, for, the, for your devotions this week because, in fact, it really is a pretty good outline of the message that he's going to be unpacking for uh, the chapters that will follow. But today, I want to come to the punchline of the introduction. Uh, it, is, it is really the punchline of the entire uh, letter to the Romans. This is his thesis statement. It was this passage, verses 14 through 17, that Martin Luther encountered and that utterly transformed him and that ended up launching what we know to be the Protestant Reformation exactly 500 years ago today. So I want you to to receive this understanding that when we tread on these verses, as I said, it's like treading on holy ground. We almost ought to be taking our shoes off. This is deep and important and, and, uh, and vital stuff. And so I invite you to listen to the words that changed the course of Christian history, of world history 500 years ago. Listen to the words from Paul's letter to the Romans. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Holy Spirit, would you do what only you can do? Would you take these words on a page? Would you take these words spoken by a a broken servant of yours And would you make them the word of God that can speak to us and transform us as well. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, a little crowd participation to start off with. I want you to raise your hand if you remember how you felt when your first child was born. Raise your hand. Remember that moment? All right, how about grandparents? Remember when your first grandchild was born? Yes, she's shaking her hand because her daughter's here with her again. 
Yeah, they're here. That's, that's awesome. Um, how, how many of you remember, uh, raise your hand if you ever had a financial windfall that you were not expecting. All right. How about if you, you made a team that you hadn't expected to make? Anybody? Okay, a couple of you. That was a big deal. How many remember what it was like to have to take some tests that were kind of scary medically and then to discover that the news was really good? Anyone remember a story like that? I do. How about this? You had to do some, uh, some procedures because of what you had discovered and they came back with the word, it's all clear, it's all good. Anyone ever have those? You know, there's something in common about all of these, new baby, new life, good health. Uh, how about remember, your, how many remember the first time your, when, when, your, when your spouse said yes to your proposal of marriage? You remember that one? I do. I, I was stumbling all over the words. I could hardly get them out of myself. There's something in common about all of these things. What are, what's in common about every one of these moments? Joy. Joy. Why? Because every one of these is what? Good news. These are good news, aren't they? What, everything I've described, this is, this is that kind of great good news that you can hardly rush out the door to share someone with. Or if you're one of these Facebookies that you can't hardly get online fast enough and blab it to the whole world, what is going on in your life? This is good news. So what's the point? Well, the point is, Paul uses a certain word four times in that introduction that we've just talked about. It's the same word. Do you know what the word is? Yes, it is gospel. Say gospel. Do you know what the word means literally? Good news, right? We think about it, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's the gospel. Uh Uh-uh. Gospel means literally good news. The good news, and it's the good news centerpiece of Paul's message. The good news is this. It's not a what, it's a who. It's Jesus of Nazareth, the rescuer who has come to earth, whom the prophets foretold and who was revealed, we read last week, by by the Holy Spirit of God to be, by his resurrection from the dead, the Son of God in power. This is the good news. It's not a what. Sometimes we think of the gospel as a a list of things to be memorized or as something to be taught or something to be recited. But the gospel is a person. It is Jesus Christ. So every time you hear Paul use the word gospel, you need to just translate it in your own head, the good news about Jesus Christ. And Paul makes three strong personal assertions about the gospel. He says, I am under obligation. I am eager and I am not ashamed. We sang about it earlier. I'm under, the, I'm under obligation, I'm eager, and I am not ashamed. I want to look at each of these briefly. First of all, verse 14, Paul says, I am under obligation to preach the gospel to the non-Jews. This text calls them Greeks, it calls them barbarians. In other places, they are known as Gentiles. Anyone who was not a Jew, he says, I am under obligation to preach the good news to the Gentiles. It is impossible for us to understand how truly radical, how countercultural these words, how revolutionary these words would have been. For a Jew like Paul, a Pharisee like Paul, to talk about his obligation to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Why? Because as far as the Jews were concerned, the Gentiles, if they were even human beings, they were utterly inferior. Did you know that? In fact, the Jews had a nickname for... The Gentiles, dogs, dogs. That's what the Jews called the Gentiles. Anyone who wasn't a Jew, they called them a dog. And, and we're not talking about the time when the dogs were cute, pampered members of the family with their little color-coordinated sweater vests. That's not the kind of dogs that they were talking about. 
The dogs that he was referring to were, were despised. They were street-roaming scavengers to be kicked out of the way. So for the Jew to call the Gentile a dog, it was an awful thing. And basically what they were saying was that they were definitely not very human and definitely not of interest to God. Except it turns out they were wrong. It turns out that they were of interest to God and had been from the very beginning, a point that Paul is going to tease out later on in, this, in his gospel. But it's po- worth pausing for a moment here. I know there are persons here today who maybe even right now, they feel like, well, they feel like kind of the way that the Jews treated the Gentiles. They kind of feel unworthy. They might feel that God really doesn't have any time for them. They might feel that they've never really fit into the, into the religious, into the church scene. And, and they wonder if there is any place at all for them. And the good news of this message, the good news of Paul's call, uh, Paul's call to, the, to, the, to the Gentiles is this. There's absolutely a place for you in the, in the family of God. Absolutely. And we're going to find out how in, in just a moment. Paul says, I am under obligation to preach this gospel to the, to the Gentiles. The word there is very interesting. It says, literally, I am a debtor. I am indebted to the Gentiles to preach this gospel. You know, you can be a debtor in a couple of ways. If I were to borrow $20 from Matt because I want to go to Starbucks and buy one cup of coffee, <laughs> the pumpkin spice kind, I guess, that's the thing. I would be indebted to him. So that's one kind. There's a second kind of indebtedness, though. Um, we're having some, we had to have some work done on the roof of the new fixer-upper that we just bought. And so I had a friend who lined up a roofer. And I gave him 200 bucks to pass on to the roofer for the work that he had done for me. By handing him that $200, suddenly he was the one who became indebted to the roofer because of what I had given to him. Do you understand? Paul is indebted in that way. God called Paul on the Damascus road. He says, I have something for you to give to the Gentile world. I have this salvation for you to give to the Gentile world. And suddenly, because of what Paul had received from God, he was indebted to those who were outside of the Jewish world. He says, I am indebted. He also says, I'm eager. That's another word he uses. I'm eager to share the good news. And then in verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed. Jews would have found the gospel of Jesus, the story of Jesus of Nazareth, to be completely shameful, in part because he was crucified. The Old Testament talks about anyone who hangs on a tree as being cursed. So that would be a shameful thing. And as far as the Romans were concerned, this was a podunk little nothing religion that came out of a podunk part of their empire on the, on the eastern extreme. And compared to their glorious pantheon of gods with statues on every corner and a temple on every other corner, it was a joke. It was pathetic. It was shameful. Paul says to all of these people, well, I'm not ashamed. Even as he's writing to the Roman Christians right in the middle of the power city, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. John Stott, who is one of my favorite uh, commentators, he says, sorry, he says that one of the things that makes these qualities even more noteworthy is how opposite they are to the way that most Christians feel about the gospel. You know, he says, I am eager, I am indebted, I'm not ashamed, but he says most Christians don't feel this way at all. 
far from feeling a sense of obligation to share the gospel. As a matter of fact, Christians feel like we're doing God a favor if we ever talk about Jesus. Far from being eager about sharing the good news, we tend to be reluctant to bring it up. And for some of us, even we are ashamed, if not of being Christians, then ashamed at least to, to raise it in, in, in good company, particularly at a time when Christian, uh, Christian language is being treated as hate speech for crying out loud. So hardly any of us would be able to say what Paul has said. I am uh, indebted. I am eager. I am not ashamed. And Paul had good reason to feel the way we might feel right now. He lived in a culture that was trying to crush this kind of language. He had already suffered at the hands of kind of the first century Jewish version of Antifa, who's out there trying to shut down all speech with which they do not agree. Paul had already been stoned and imprisoned and flogged and beaten for the sake of the gospel. And still he says, I am obliged, I am eager, and I am unashamed. And then in verse 16, he tells us why he feels this way. I'm unashamed of, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. That word power in the Greek is dunamis. Dunamis. Say dunamis. There's an English word that sounds like dunamis. What is it? Dynamite. Dynamite. That's where they get this word from. He says, I, uh, the, the, uh, Paul says this good news about this long-awaited resurrected Jesus. He says it's like spiritual dynamite because it brings about salvation. And he says, and that salvation is for everyone, for all who will believe. For Jews, yes, first, because they were the ones who were called first. But he says, but also for the dogs, also for the cast-offs, also for the rejected ones. He said, it's for everyone who believes. This verse would have been dynamite when Paul wrote it. It would have been utterly controversial when he wrote it because it blew up two kinds of misconceptions. One was that the, that the Gentiles couldn't be saved and the other was that the Jews didn't needn't be saved. As far as the Jews were concerned, they already were. They, had, they were in the God club. They had the rituals. They had the, the law. They had the, the temple. They had circumcision. They didn't need be saving at all as far as they were concerned. They had forgotten what it was like for God to have saved them, to rescued them, to call them out of captivity. They had forgotten. And I think that can be often our issue too. When we find ourselves reluctant to talk about the gospel or embarrassed to share the good news, I think one of the reasons is we forgot how desperately we needed saving. Or maybe we really didn't believe that we were ever that bad after all. Many of us, if you talk, we kind of view sin like naughty little things that we have done. It's, it's like, uh, like the common cold. It's something that we <clears throat> can live with. We, we'll take a few aspirins. We'll kind of ride it out. But it's irksome, but it's not deadly. We'll get through it. That's what we see sin as. And in the next two chapters, starting next week, though, Paul is going to declare that sin is like spiritual Ebola. Everyone who gets it, everyone who's infected from it, and everyone is, as he'll point out, everyone dies. We need saving. And I'm not sure how much we believe that. I was shocked this last week to receive a call from Jeff Jeremiah, the head of our denomination, telling me that one of my dear friends, a 51-year-old pastor from Detroit, 
had just been diagnosed with uh, third, colon cancer, third stage, 3B, stage 3B. It's very serious. It's shocking news. And I guarantee you my buddy Scott knows that he needs saving. He, the diagni- diagnosis is dire and he is ready to be saved. He's already had 10 inches of his colon removed. He starts his chemotherapy this week because he knows he needs saving. One time I was sitting by a pool in Hawaii many years ago. And as I was reading, I looked out and I saw a little beautiful brown-haired brunette girl in the water right in front of me. But I saw that she was struggling. In fact, she was thrashing. And what was even more scary, she was thrashing silently and with a look of terror in her eyes. And she was thrashing silently because she had already swallowed water. And she was drowning. So I, you know, I jumped in. I, I grabbed her. I pulled to the side and got her out. And honestly, it was no biggie. No one would have even probably noticed what I had done. I mean, it was that far, not that far from the edge, and Maria was very little. It was not hard to pull her out. It was no big deal to me. I guarantee it was a big deal to her because she needed saving, and she knew it. This gift of salvation, we take it for granted, but it is an enormous thing to remember. We were needed saving, and the question you need to ask yourself is do you believe that? Do you remember what it was like to be drowning in your sin and left to your own devices? And if you were, you were doomed. Paul believes that. And I think we forget it and we allow indifference or maybe embarrassment to mute our voices because we have forgotten or maybe we never really believed that we needed saving and that our friends and family and neighbor need saving too. If they were slipping beneath the waters of the pool, we would dive in without a second choice. If they needed platelets that only our blood could provide, we would be the first one to line up for the needle. We would do that because we love them. Well, the Bible says, Paul says that apart from Jesus, everyone's spiritual condition is hopeless and we are doomed. And yet we think twice and maybe thrice and we dally and we dither. We hold back from them the only good news that can save them. I wish everyone in this church was coming on Wednesday nights to the class called God's Space so that Together we could learn how to have conversations that will lead them to the glorious discovery of the only thing that will save them, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here's something else that's important about this dynamite good news. It is all God's doing. It's all God's doing. In verse 1, Paul calls it the gospel of God. In verse 9, it is the gospel of his son. In verse 16, it is the power of God for salvation. Throughout this section and through the whole book, Paul's going to underscore again and again that the gift of salvation is God's doing, God's idea, God's plan since the beginning. It has nothing to do with our being good enough, nothing to do with our being Jewish enough or Presbyterian enough or churchy enough, which was why it was such good news for the Gentiles who were none of those things. It has everything instead to do with God keeping the promises that he made back in the Old Testament. A promise that he was going to bless the whole world through his chosen people. Salvation is all God's work. And it's the hardest thing for Americans to get their heads around because we are so certain that if we just work hard enough, we're going to accomplish anything we want to, including our own salvation. It is all God's work. And this is the dynamite 
discovery that set Martin Luther free, that helped him realize he could not, he could never earn his salvation by being a great monk. Only one thing was required of him according to this text. And it's the same thing that is required of every single human being if we will experience salvation. One commentator calls it the great leveler. What is the one thing that is required of us? Yes, say it. Faith. Another way of thinking about it would be trust, but faith is the thing that's required. He said, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And he says that the righteousness of God is revealed from faith. That means from a faithful God for faith. That is for our faith, our salvation. The righteous, he says, shall live by faith. This is another churchy word and something you've got to understand because sometimes we turn faith into yet another spiritual work. If I just had enough faith, if I just tried harder, we still are in the delusion of thinking that our efforts, our faith will somehow turn God's, twist God's arm for us. And so I want to show you another way of thinking about faith, an image that might be more helpful for us. Let's say I want to present this gift to Matt, and I'm so glad to see you, so I'm glad to give you this gift. What is his action that would represent faith in this exchange? Yes, he takes the gift. He receives the gift with gratitude. He believes that there's something in the gift that's, that's worth opening up and he tears it open and he, and he enjoys it and he's grateful for it. That is the, the image of gift, of, of faith that Paul is trying to convey to us. It's this wonderful sense of believing that what God has offered to us is worth having and we take it and we believe it and we trust it. Salvation is God's work. He has done all the heavy lifting. What he has simply done is say, here, Here, will you have it? And our response, our only response is, yes, thank you. That is the act of faith. This really does not sit well with people who want to help God along the way. It just does not. I was talking in my life group this last Friday. And one guy heard heard me talk about this incredible graciousness where we simply take the gift that God has given us. He said, but surely we've got to do something. That's too easy. That's too easy. We've got, to, we've got to help God somehow, right? I mean, we've got to do something to become a, a better person, something to, to, to be more like what Jesus wants us to be, don't we? And by the way, it's a great question. And by the way, a question that Paul himself is going to address in a few chapters. But let me try to touch on it in this way. I am blessed to have a a great earthly dad. He's still alive. What an awesome gift to have, this long-lived, awesome father who loves me. I've never doubted my dad's love for me. He's proud of me. I've never doubted my father's pride in me. And it existed before I ever did anything at all. I'm all the more reminded of the power of that because I had dinner this week with a couple, both of whom could not say that about either of their parents that they ever said they loved them, ever said they were proud of them. And I hear that and I think, God, thank God for my parents. And I thank God for this father who loves me, who believes in me, who has always been proud of me. I did nothing to earn that love, that pride. But you know what? I want to please my dad. I want to make my dad proud of me. I'm 60 years old, and it still matters to me when my dad says, that was a great sermon, son. Or when he says, you're raising two great kids, son. 
Or when he says, you and Cindy have built such a marvelous marriage. I'm proud of you. It still makes my heart swell to hear my father brag on me because I love him and I want to please him. I didn't have to earn any of those things, but because I have them, it makes me want to be a different and better kind of person. That's the balancing act of the gospel. In fact, in verse 5 of this verse, Paul calls it the obedience of faith. That's a very interesting confluence of two words. Either either it is obedience by which I'm living or it's faith, right? One or the other. But no, he says it's the obedience of faith. When we receive by faith this incredible dynamite gift of salvation, we become more obedient. We become more aligned with the will of the Father. Why? Because we want to make our spiritual daddy proud of us. I told you we'd be covering a lot of territory. I want to look at one more thing. Paul writes about this dynamite news and then he says that it reveals God's righteousness. Do you remember that word? In it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Righteousness. Say that word, please. It's a word that we're going to, it's a very uh, dense word. And it's, and it's one that we're going to unpack in the months to come. It means a whole lot of different things and a lot of layers to it. But I want to look at it from one angle this morning that I think helps us here. At the core word, the core of it, this word righteousness means that we have a God who is faithful to his covenant promises. A God who keeps his covenant promises. The language of righteousness always aligns with a covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God. Thousands of years back, God had come to this pagan out in the middle of nowhere and said, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. We're going to make a great nation together, you and I. And, and out of that, I'm going to save the world. Hundreds of years after that, the prophets began to rise up and said one after another, you know, that promise God made, he's going to make good on it. He's going to send a Messiah, an anointed one. That's what Messiah means. He's going to come and he's going to save the world. And Paul says, remember those promises, that covenant that God made? Well, he has made good on it. He has kept his promises. He has done what we could not do. He has reestablished an intimate face-to-face relationship with his children, a relationship that was thrown away in the Garden of Eden by our spiritual parents because they blew the whole thing. Face-to-face relationship. Last Friday, two days ago, was my daughter Rachel's 25th birthday. How can that possibly be? That's a picture of her in her graduation uh, from Gordon-Conwell Seminary. And of course, it evokes all kinds of emotions in me to think of my little girl being that old and how old I must be if she's that old. (laughs) Rachel, uh, many, many years ago, slept in a crib just off of our bedroom, a little cubbyhole there. And one morning, very, very, very early, we heard Rachel beginning to stir We ignored her for a while and that didn't work. And so finally Cindy got up and she went in and she got Rachel out of the crib and and she brought her in and she plopped her down between Cindy and me. I was on my side facing away from Rachel and, and I tried to be quiet and ignore her in the hopes that she would fall back to sleep for a little while longer. How many have ever dreamed that dream? Yeah, how, how well did it work? It didn't work very well at all. So it was still for a while. And then suddenly I found a little hand beginning to migrate its way towards me. 
And I felt her hand, first of all, on my shoulder. And then it kind of moved its way up and found my face. And she began to trace out my features until she found what she was looking for, which was my left eye. And then she pushed into my eyeball. It wasn't that hard, but it was hard enough to say, open up. I know you're in there. And so I gave up. I surrendered and I flipped over. And literally, there was her face right in front of me, nose to nose, backlit by the sun that was shining through the early morning, the early morning sun shining through the window with this huge smile on her face because all she wanted to do was have a face-to-face moment with her daddy. And that's the image that we get of God's righteousness being imparted to us. He talks about this face-to-face covenant relationship with the Father. And that's what he longs for us, a relationship that is unspoiled by sin or guilt, a relationship where we don't have to drop our gaze in in shame for our failings. And here is the, the glorious punchline that you'll hear repeated again and again. This righteousness is a gift from God. We tend to think it as... Being righteous is something that we got to do. We got to do what is right. We got to act right. We got to do, walk the right path. That's what makes us righteous. And we are still missing the boat. Because Romans teaches us, and what Martin Luther discovered is that righteousness is something God gives to us because of his great love for us. He seeks us, though we are stained by sin. He seeks us, though we are, our relationship is strained and broken. He restores it. He makes us clean. He gives to us, and here's another theological word, he imputes to us, imputes to us, gives to us that which we do not have. That's the righteousness of his own perfect son, the Lord Jesus. Even when we have our backs turned, even when our eyes are closed, Even when we're trying to avoid or ignore, God gently reaches out in the darkness of our sin and he feels for us and he lifts our face and he touches our eyes. And when finally we open them, we discover this incredible vista of God's smiling face right before us. A restored covenant relationship, just like God promised. A face-to-face relationship with the Lord. That is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you don't find that to be good news, I don't know what I can do to help you. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for hunting us down. Thank you that you are the hound of heaven. And though we were turned away, blinded to, ignoring and avoiding and deafened to your voice, your call, your touch, You just never gave up. You kept your promises. You restored us in a way that we could never have restored ourselves. For that, we will always thank you. There are some of us here who remember how desperately we needed saving. And so if we do, God, we thank you for your grace. There may be some of us here who aren't so sure we're that bad. Lord, would you help us open our eyes to the delusion that we're not? Help us to open our eyes to see that there's nothing we can do to be good enough, religious enough, churchy enough. All that we can do is receive this incredible gift of salvation with hearts of gratitude through our faith in what you have done. So we speak these words to you 
the seeker of our souls, the saver of our souls, precious God, precious Lord Jesus. We're so grateful and we thank you. Amen.